But um, honestly, this is a long time coming. This is a lot of fun um, for us to be able to do this kind of thing. We haven't done this in forever. Um, and we've been just kind of kicking around ideas for a little while now. And this is our way of trying to, I guess, I mean, it, it's an old quote, but it's being a nuance, more nuanced in the noise of the world. I mean, and everything is... I mean, quite frankly, gotten crazier in the last couple years. <laughs> like the the hits just keep on coming when it comes to chaos inducing things, right? Like you'd think we'd get a breather post pandemic, and yet here we are with not so much. Grinding, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Yes. Yeah. It's been nonstop for our generation. I mean, it's yeah. been 9 11, um, the longest war in American history. Economic collapse in 2008. Yep. Uh, geez, I mean, COVID. <laughs> right, every time it thinks like, it's like, it'll be smooth sailing from here on out. And then it's not. <laughs> no, and also, whatever we, th- who was it? I forget his name. At the end of uh, the Cold War, he said this, like, this is the end of history. Uh, that was mm. <laughs> right. History never ends. History is a <laughs> series of catastrophes <laughs> that we just keep recovering from. Is that, yeah. This has become extraordinarily uh, evident in the last few years. Yes. I mean, you'd have to be foolish to think that like it, it's one of the things i always think about whenever you hear people talking about history or what we expect to happen or things like that and it's always like well every generation thinks they're in the most chaotic or in the you know you pick whatever it is yeah. everyone feels like they're in the chaos of it all or the the end of the world whatever um like even just thinking back since like world war 2 we had World War II happened and they were the greatest generation because they, you know, showed up and served and whatnot. But then you had the Vietnam War show up after that. And then it was like all the chaos that evolved in that area. And then we had our thing with the 9-11 and the chaos that ensued from that. So it's just like this, to me, it's just a never ending just ball that rolls. And it, it, it only looks like it's stable or better than it is today when you're have like distance from it. Yeah. The stability I think is an illusion. And I think that that that's being aided by the psychological distance that's being um, sort of uh, exacerbated by, I think the internet that what's gone on Mm -hmm. is that we sit here and spend all this time online um, but online is kind of a little co- or no obvious consequence that it's so abstract that any consequences it has are way down the line. It's not so obvious. Everything seems like entertainment just because you're watching it on a screen. Yeah. I was actually at a, um, they have like brown bag seminars, what they call them. They're just uh, brown bag. You bring your lunch in over an hour. Some professor talks about their research, right? Okay. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there's a woman who's a developmental psychologist and she was talking about 
you sit a kid down with their mom and then you do what's called like a false belief task or um, just to try to get a sense of the kid's theory of mind. So somebody will come in in the next room uh, and or two people will and then one person will leave and then they'll hide the toy that the both of them were playing with. And then you kind of ask the kid, hey, when that person comes back, where are they going to look for that toy? And if the kid has an understanding okay. of the other person's mind, if that kid can take the perspective of that person that walked out of the room before it was hidden, then they'll say, oh, well, they're not going to know exactly where to look. Or they'll say they're, they're going to look where they last saw it. But young kids will say, we'll just say they're going to look for exactly where it is. Not being able to understand that that person doesn't know that that's where that thing is. <laughs> right? So, yeah just to make it a touch more concrete. Um, if me and you are in a room, this kid's watching and we both have a ball, we're throwing it back like a baseball, we're throwing it back and forth. And then I put it down on the table and you walk out. And then I take the ball and I put it under, um, underneath the table. Uh, then a kid who knows who can put himself in your perspective would say that you would look on top of the table, but the kid who doesn't or is unable to take your perspective, who can only have their own perspective, will say you'll look under the table, despite the fact you would have no idea that that's where it would be. Right. Um, so you run that test and then you do that test on screens or not on screens. Right. So to what degree is a computer screen making or a television screen making this, uh, may, adjusting the way that the kid thinks. And so the kid <laughs> actually performs worse performs worse with the screen and it seems and it doesn't seem to be a perceptual issue they work this out in a few different ways what they think is going on is that when the kid looks at the screen they don't believe it's real <laughs> that all this oh, kind of thing, we're just watching tv here right so um there's a little that's a touch of evidence for the idea that what we're doing uh, or what's what's occurring might be occurring uh is that as we spend more and more time online looking at screens, we think that these screen things, this world is an unreal world. And then um, we don't believe, as a result, don't believe it's of any real consequence. And yeah. so we're watching all the craziness that's going on out there. And in the world, should or be not in the world. <laughs> like, Right. I should be listening to the news. I should be seeing these arguments on Facebook and Twitter. I should be um, looking at January 6th or whatever it happens to be in such a way that when it occurs, when I come into contact with it, I adjust my actions to incorporate that in because that thing is of consequence. It's significant. I need to change my behavior now that I have that new information, right? But instead of what we're doing is just thinking that, oh, it's all BS. It's all out there. It's nothing that I say on Twitter really matters. Nothing that I do online really matters. And I can't help but think that that bleeds into our day-to-day -day lives, that people are interacting with each other now as if they're unreal things on a screen, that they've been practicing this certain level of fakeness for so long that they can't divorce their experience from it anymore. And even though they know consciously that this is real, like no one would ever, if you ask them, say that this is bullshit, they experience it as not of any consequence.
and that contributes to the meaning crisis that guys like John Bervakey talk about. Yeah, we should do a podcast on just his stuff down the road <laughs> before we derail ourselves on the actual <laughs> yeah, lot, topic, man. but it's it's related for sure. Yeah, and this actually, so this all brings us to what the purpose of this live stream is, right? Because we were talking a little bit and I was thinking that a lot of books that I hope people could understand that have been impactful for me, or I've admittedly have difficulties understanding. I found that in trying to, or in talking about the book with another person, uh, just reading through a paragraph or something, um, I could remember it better. It was more accessible mm -hmm. in that way. Uh, made two heads are better than one. Right. In that, for many people, myself included, now, we don't quite have someone to do that with. So you might want to access some philosophy book. It's a little bit dense. Um, but because of its density, it's hard to break into. And so yes. this might be a way of making things a little more uh, accessible, right? To just... Yeah. I mean, we're, we're effectively doing like a, a book club or... If you have like an idea, I mean, we've done, we did this before. Like, this is why we started podcasting <laughs> way back when is we used to just go to the bar and we yeah. talk about the ideas we were exploring either from books or podcasts or whatever medium we were happening to get them from. And we would find that we were getting way more out of them just from talking with each other. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, we would, I can remember going to Bulldogs and talking about like consciousness mm -hmm. or the group of us yeah we had like six of us <laughs> i miss hilariously that. and that's hard <laughs> i i feel very out of practice that it's been so long thanks to covid um yeah for many other reasons obviously i moved to nashville um since i've had the opportunity to really sit down and talk about these interesting things yes so with that being said yeah, the reason for this preamble was just to get make it accessible to other people that this is not something you have to be quote unquote in school for or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and in that it could be that in un coming to understand these books and these philosophies and whatever it happens to be, um, that frames all of the craziness that's going on now. Mm -hmm. Right, it helps frame it. Um, so in <laughs> so one one way to or to make things hopefully or maybe to shock us into um, oh. considering our present moment a little bit more. The book is Immoderate <laughs> Greatness: Why Civilizations Fail <laughs> by William. We're upping the bandit off on our first live stream. <laughs> yep. So I'm on William. I think it's Ophuls or Awfuls, O P H U L S is. Um, website. Um, just a quick biography. It's actually, William Offels is actually the pen name of Patrick Offels. Served for oh, eight years as the Foreign Service Officer in Washington, Ab Abidjan. I don't know where that is. Uh, in Tokyo, before receiving a PhD in political science from Yale. Uh, after teaching briefly at Northwestern, he became independent scholar and author. Published three books on the. Ecological, social, and political challenges confronting the modern industrial civilization. So that's him. And the cool. book again is Immoderate Greatness Why Civilizations Fail. 
uh, this was actually recommended to me <laughs> by, not to me, to everyone, by Ian McGilchrist in a podcast I heard recently. So I picked it up. Okay. It's pretty short. It's only, um, I think like, it's only like 80 pages or something or nine. Oh, okay. When, yeah. when you were explaining some stuff too, the McGilchrist came to mind myself too. I was just listening to a podcast summarizing one of his ideas. He'd be another interesting one. Well, oh, we're yeah. going to tangent him a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, he would be an interesting one. I would have to pick out some very select stuff because um, his books are very long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could easily just pick like one topic, just spitballing for future idea things. So we're yeah. not spending, you know, he, he organized. So the master and his emissary, he organized really well. So um, we could even say it's all about the hemispheres of the brain. We could be like, what's a particular topic like theory of mind that we might be interested in knowing the differences in the hemispheres on this and just go through that piece. You know, something like that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and start here. Um, it's the first chapter, uh, page nine is what I'm looking at here. Um, so we're not gonna start from the beginning. We're gonna kind of try to move forward, get a maybe a page or so. Yeah, okay, that works so. for me. As a process, civilization resembles a long running economic bubble. Civilizations convert found or conquered ecological wealth into economic goods. And population growth. As the bubble expands, a spirit of irrational exuberance reigns. Few take thought for the morrow or consider that they are borrowing from posterity. Finally, however, resources are either effectively exhausted or no longer repay the effort needed to exploit them. As massive demand collides with dwindling supply, the ecological credit that has fueled expansion and created a large population accustomed to living high off the hog is choked off. The civilization begins to implode, neither a slow and measured decline or more rapid and chaotic collapse. Okay. So that's paragraph one <laughs> of this. Man, that's, that makes <laughs> total sense, right? It's you have a finite number of resources, you start to expand. The things that you're expanding, your the technologies you're building, the the architecture, the number of people that you have, are all expanding uh, in a way that's predicated on those resources, right? You have so many mouths you need to feed, you better have the food to feed them. But once the food starts to run out, well, now they right. start to drop off. I, I think a good analogy here is like if you can imagine a like a really big river, right? And say you dammed that at the beginning, so all the way down here, but everybody lives all the way down at the very end of that river, right? Before it goes to the ocean. Hmm. It's going to take a certain amount of time before that river dries up and people realize it's a problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what civilization collapses. Like everything can kind of exist for a while, but then there's a point where, oh, wait, <laughs> we've got a yeah, fundamental problem here. Yeah, you're actually dead <laughs> walking at a certain point. You just don't know it. Yes. Right. It's like, we've run out already. You just don't know that you've run out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Continuing on. As civilizations encounter emerging limits, they will, of course, make every effort to innovate their way around them. However, as we shall see later, these efforts themselves have costs that gradually accumulate. Thus, the civilization's indebtedness compounds. 
Unfortunately, the benefits accrue immediately, but the debts come due only later. So the momentum of development continues. However, at some point, service on the accumulated debt begins to preclude new investment as more and more energy has to be expand, expended, simply running running in place. Okay, so that's a um, compounding indebtedness as you try to create innovations. Um, you, right, you create new technologies to deal with the problems that are now emerging, but those, mm-hmm. those technologies themselves have a debt. So while it seems to, for a time, delay the inevitable, um, it's actually compounding. It's making things worse. Yeah. It kind of reminds you of that the, I think it's an Einstein quote of no problem can be solved at the level of consciousness that created it. And so it's like people come up with these ideas that are kind of more like band-aid fixes. It's like, rather than going to the root cause, you're just like, well, let's just do it this way instead. And then you realize that that really doesn't solve anything until it's too late. That's a scary idea. Right. It's, it's like, uh oh, we messed that up really bad. <laughs> Let's just not go to the root cause and just keep adding more and more band aids on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff you can kind of like when you look at civilization le- level, I'm, I'm going to just kind of change it a little bit, but when you look at civilization level, it can feel so big that for like any one of us, this is such a huge problem that how do you fix it? Right. Like the, the, individual impact each of us can make is really difficult. But if you zoom this down into a smaller scale, say like your personal healthcare, you can kind of look at these things in that similar way. Civilizations are just larger organisms to some degree. And so like, if you look at your health, if you decide to eat shitty for 40, 50 years, then you see all the negative repercussions that happen, but not until 50 years happen. And the only way to like solve for those things is behaving in a different way 50 years ago or 25 years ago, right? Best case scenario. And so that's kind of like how people can kind of conceptualize these things instead of just being like, God, civilization, like getting me to head off or something I can't change. Yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a very, it's a strange problem because what I'm like, my, the objection I'm getting in my head to what this is talking about is something like the like the nature of progress itself like the thing the example that i always get to or fall back on is mm-hmm. that we solved starvation with obesity <laughs> that yeah the right idea, <laughs> like the idea is that yeah we we're not starving anymore and the solution that we did that we created was to make very cheap food and it turns out cheap food isn't exactly the healthiest. And so we have a whole bunch of people instead of the poor starving to death. Now the poor are obese. <laughs> right. And so that's they're, a they're better. Eating, they're eating themselves to death in some sense. Yeah. It's not good food. Yeah. It's, it's one of the. Sorry. No, you're good. Go ahead. I was going to say, you get people who complain about that, like complain about the fact that the poor are overweight and so on. Um, and they're right to that we should imp- improve the quality of our food. 
But in context, you have to understand that this is a significantly better problem to have than starving. If only yes. because it takes 40 days to starve and it takes years to eat yourself to death. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I should mention here, I think that's important is that it's easy to look at this and say, well, all of the stuff in modern society has its own problems, right? Like everything's a double-edged sword. But I would say that living today is obscenely better than, than even a hundred years ago. Or, you know, you keep rolling back the clock. Today's, like, it would be better to live with today's problems than it would be to live with a hundred years ago's problems. Oh, yeah. Even a hundred years ago, we don't have, you know, food is stored on ice blocks still. And yeah. everybody has a horse and carriage only if you're super rich. Um, and so the, the point I'm making is that what we have today is we have to realize that it's like, I'm going to use a Spider-Man quote. I don't mean to use it, but it's with great power comes great responsibility. Each of us has the responsibility to use the technologies and the advances we have, but it's, but nobody's going to tell you how to live in some sense. Like it's, it's within your realm of influence to manage yourself, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And, but it, it was like, but if we all manage ourselves well, that's how we propel civilization to better places. Hmm. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. <laughs> it's not a perspective that you need. Uh, people are going to object to the idea that it's better to live now than in the past, which is, it's just kind of a strange thing. Uh, I think that part of the reason that they'll react that way is because they think that saying that the, things are better now than they had once been is an excuse not to progress. And that that's how they hear that. That when I say, for example, um, when people are talking about racial politics, when I say that um, things are clearly better for black Americans now than they were a hundred years ago, which is fat. There's no way around that. That is a fact. Uh, they will object because they they think that what the only reason you would say that is to dismiss their arguments about improving black lives now. And that is not necessarily the case. It is a good buffer against uh, resentment and provides a certain amount of uh, perspective, right? In, in, yeah. Opens a door for gratitude and a sophisticated, sophisticated kind of gratitude that is balanced with the ever um, uh, improving that that progressive mindset that you still want to improve, right? And you can be still and you can have gratitude, right? These things are not in opposition with each other. You can yeah. have gratitude and you can recognize the problems of today and decide and decide to progress. Yeah. I mean, civilizations and cultures are always in beta to use a software term. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, there's that. no such, like, well, there's no such thing as it's like never a finite product. Uh, like in some sense, like there's, it's always in flux and it's always in some places, right? There's pockets all around the world where it's like, well, you know, North Korea has got some version of this software that's not so great. And then, you know, you go to France or you go to, you know, yeah. South America or Brazil, right? Like everywhere has its own version of it. It's only until you take like a snapshot of it to see where we're at, you know, 
in the year 2022, but it's never stagnant in the sense that it's like, well, this is as far as we'll ever go. (laughs) Cause that's just never happening. We can't, we're we're not a species to sit still (laughs) and deposit some place where it's good. Like it's done. Like you've nice job. We've completed civilization, uh, is to posit a heaven. And there oh, are okay. utopia, and that's a dangerous thing to do because once you have some perfect civilization, what wouldn't you sacrifice for that? Right. Well, how, what number of eggs isn't worth that omelet? <laughs> right. Which is, and so you justify an unnumber, untold number of atrocities uh, in positing right. utopia. Like the means time. to the end. Yeah. And so you have to have a, an incremental view of history that things improve slowly and that that's okay. Cause you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. Right. Mm-hmm. You'll just be overwhelmed. You, you have to do this one little piece at a time, and move forward. That's not sexy and nobody's getting super excited about that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's like cleaning up your room. That's not sexy either, but no. it, it's actually funny. You brought this up. Um, I was listening to breaking points earlier today. Uh, Sagar brought up a point about like history and he was talking about, um, he referenced, uh, uh, Genghis Khan and how like when people zoom out in history and be like, well, look at all the good the Mongols did. They, they unified most of China and they, they were able, able to establish trade routes and all this stuff. But then when you stop and say, wait a minute, at what cost you realize that it cost like 10 million people. And there were different battles where there was so much blood and human, human remains that it was soaked for days with <laughs> humans who had been yeah. slaughtered. So it's like that, like let's not take a rosy eyed view of history when, when it, at what cost certain advances happened, you know, for humanity, like some total, like, it, yeah. like not all, like not all of this is going to sound good. Yeah. Even and though it, ha- it happened. Yes. There, these things come at an incredible cost and you, the part of the reason that incremental change is good is because it isn't revolutionary. They're little revolutions instead of massive revolutions because massive right. revolutions always are violent. Mm. And you might say, looking back a thousand years, oh, good, Genghis Khan opened up a trade route. But you're right to point out that that costs a lot of lives. And so if what you want is for the most good for the most people over the longest period of time, then the best you can do is incremental change at the very least to avoid incredible suffering for many people. Right. For gains that will probably not be sustained anyway. Genghis Khan's empire fell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think um, little parts off to his sons and then they all just kind of dissolved. I mean, the infighting that happened after that. I think if anyone's curious about this level of history, go watch Dan Collins' hardcore history or listen rather. He is one of the best. Hell yeah. Okay, let's move forward. Yep. So, all right. Stealing resources from others is not a permanent solution because Conquest 2 has serious costs. Imperial overreach has spelled the downfall, downfall of many empires. Even peaceful trade provides no escape from biophysical limits. To get resources from others, you must normally give something valuable in return, either resources themselves or goods and services that depend ultimately on resources. In short, on a finite planet, you cannot grow f- 
forever or violate the laws of, of physics. If you use renewable resources faster than they can regenerate, they will dwindle and ultimately disappear. If you produce waste faster than they can, then they can be rendered harmless. They will poison you. And if you use non-renewable resources to fuel current consumption, they will eventually run out. Of course, the ultimate limits are rarely reached because diminishing returns on ecological exploitation and extraction set in well before then. Technology and good management can forestall the day of ecological reckoning, but not indefinitely. Okay, so the part about overreach is really important. So you, what's his name? P, is it Peter Zion? The uh, geopolitical commentator that I sent you that. Let me pull it up. Yeah. I think it is. It's. Whoa, whoa. Aaron, let's see. Yeah. Peter yep. Z-E-I-H-A-N. Zion. Peter Zion. Maybe. Okay, so he was Sorry talking about what's going on with Russia. He's a geopolitical analyst. Um, talking about what's going on with Russia and that Russia has been having a long dwindling collapse um, of their human resources. So that's their population um, as well as some natural resources and so on. And that part of what they've been trying to do, part of what the Ukraine war is, is this overreach, is this expansion to make up for the loss of ecological resources that they have and they're desperate and they know that they're desperate and that it's something like within the next five years, um, they're going to lose a huge portion of their draftable population because they're going to get too old. So they're like, if we're going to expand, we have to do it right now because we're about to run out of people. So that explains part of what's going on here is that, Russia is uh, on the slow decline and they know it and they're panicking and they pushed into Ukraine to start to get toward the, some of the things that they need to sustain themselves. Um, that's an example of this imperial overreach um, that Offals is talking about. Interesting. So that's pretty wild. Oh, this is great. Okay. So to make matters worse, it is not, Resources in general that matter for natural processes are governed by a basic ecological principle called the law of the minimum. Thus, the factor in least supply is controlling. For example, to grow cereals takes soil, seeds, fertilizer, and water, as well as labor. Not only must all these factors of production be present for there to be a crop, but they must be present in the right quality or proportion. Thin soils or poor seeds will stunt crop growth, even if all the other factors are present in abundance. Thus, some resources are more critical for civilization than others. Okay. That's um same guy, Peter Zion, talked about fertilizer in China and how their soil is not good. Their quality is crap. So they have to produce a whole ton of fertilizer. And for the most part, they do an okay. They do okay at at that um but uh i think he said that i hope i get this right that the things that they need to produce some of this fertilizer are imported so they're dependent in other ways they they don't produce a lot of 
the fundamentals of the, of what it takes to run a well-functioning civilization. Same thing he said with most of the developing world is they don't, they're not producers of like the quote unquote building blocks of a functioning society, like fertilizers or um, the seeds or maybe having the soil quality to do this. You know what I mean? It's the simple things that people get hung up on because it's like, if your supply chain dries up, I mean, that's a, that's a lesson we've all learned. I mean, I feel like more people in, in the layman's group know more about supply chain now than they've ever had. <laughs> oh yeah. It's pretty wild. And that, and that whole, th- so he has a, we should post this other podcast too in the, in the notes or whatever, but he talks about um, the African swine fever that it's this disease that, went around China and was killing a bunch of their pigs. Mm-hmm. And after it did, uh, China thought it would be easier, cheaper to, instead of, because a bunch of farms went under, they lost all their pigs, they collapsed. Instead of um, throwing money at those farms, they just subsidized new farmers, said, get after it, young bucks, like you can handle this. <laughs> um, what ended up happening is that they, they, it was probably cheaper but not in the long run because yeah. these guys don't have the experience that the old farmers had and so their their pigs are in bad can like sanitary conditions and as a result are at high risk for another wave of the african swine fever and they're anticipating that happening again in china so there'll be another wiping out of of other pigs at the same time another example of the root cause not addressing the root cause <laughs> Yeah, right. They they didn't for this is one of these problems that are that dictatorships have is that they can just go, oh, we'll just do this. Where the market in some sense would find an organic solution. It would work around it. You'd have probably some of the larger farms taking over um, supply uh, and providing that and filling in the vacuum that all the smaller farms made and all that. Um, but instead of letting it organically occur, they imposed a government idea, like some genius in a boardroom thought, well, we'll just do this because it's cheaper in the bottom line. And then sure enough, they just set themselves up for failure because they don't know. This is why I, I don't like centralized um, right. government. I don't like centralized decision-making of any kind because the guy then who's at the center ends up being so far removed from the day-to-day uh, workings of the people on the periphery that he's just totally unequipped to make a yeah. decision because he doesn't have the facts on the ground like the guy, the 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 hog farmer does. Right. He he's the one who knows what it's like to be the hog farmer and seeing this disease ravage the herds, yeah. and he would have the best idea to help mitigate that, or at least at the very least you should be helping smooth out the rough. I was going to make a C analogy, but it doesn't work. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Smooth out the speed bumps, basically, for, for something like that. It's nuts. It's a terrible idea. They, they, they did it for a little while in Afghanistan. Oh, who was it? I forget which Medal of Honor recipient it was, a Marine. Um, but he ended up being in a situation where they couldn't get artillery to a bunch of guys who are pinned down and getting killed. Um, yeah. He just charged out there and broke all the rules. But the reason that they couldn't get artillery to these guys 
And the reason that they weren't allowed, like he actually just disobeyed commands and went out and go went and saved all these dudes. Not say he didn't save all of them, but he brought a bunch of as many as he came. Yeah. Um, um, the reason that he was breaking the rules on that is because for at that time they had been so concerned about civilian deaths that they, in kind of a political panic, centralized a bunch of the power. They said, "Okay, you guys keep making mistakes. Well, now some general or something has to okay this before you can do it." But that centralized the decision making. And when things got tough and chaotic and people didn't quite know what was going on and it's an emergency, it took forever to make a decision about this because it has to go right. up every fucking link on that chain of command before they can finally just do what had needed to be done, what everybody knew needed to be done from the outset. And people died because they said centralize the command too much. Yep. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Now, obviously, you can't go in the opposite extreme and have no centralized command at all or no, no command at all. Right. Where it's, it's right. everybody <laughs> in and you're just running around like chaotic chickens with your head cut off, but you need some balance here and to centralize too much, you end up with um, a complete inability to really, you just make things worse. Everything you do. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's a huge thing we have to relearn in the coming time period is learning how to, how to, create decentralization within different regions so that they can feel empowered to make the best decisions. Cause there's, I feel like there's a lot of um, kicking and screaming around that right now. Yeah. Okay. Continuing on uh, civilization as a system. Uh, it's basic mode is overshoot and collapse. Okay. So mm. Yeah. Um, that is, it tends to continue developing well beyond the point of ecological sense as well as economic sense in many cases, although that is another story. In doing so, it degrades or exhausts ecological resources that are critical for its long-term survival. What ecologists call the carrying capacity is eroded. When the inevitable day of reckoning arrives, the civilization therefore experiences decline or even collapse until it comes into balance with the remaining impoverished resource base. That's a form of lie. That's pretty interesting. So that, so the, the idea that that's a lie, right, is that you're pretending, you're acting as if you have resources you don't have. Right? So you could say that the reason that civilizations collapse is because their uh, decadence is founded on bullshit. Yeah. Right, that actually the reason civilizations end isn't because, just just because they've, um, exhausted their resources, but because they're unwilling to recognize when it is that they've exhausted those resources. So that's pretty interesting. Um, if we ask why civilizations have consistently fallen into this trap, the answer is multifaceted. Obviously, sheer ignorance is one reason. The signs of overdevelopment are ignored until too late, so that's a lie. So humanity only discovers the error of its ecological ways in retrospect. But there are more specific causes. Leaving the human element aside for now, one important part of the answer is that ecological costs are not reflected in economic transitions. Transactions, excuse me. For instance, if 10 sheep are bartered for one log, the fact that the sheep have may have contributed to desert, desertification, that's so making things into a desert, through overgrazing, or that the tree represents ecological capital, not just the cost of felling uh, the tree and transporting a log, 
is not reflected in the transaction. Thus, a market failure has occurred. The prices do not represent physical reality. This failure is particularly egregious in the case of the log. For not only is the true value of an asset that took a century or more to produce not realized, but capital has been liquidated to produce current income. Okay, that's really interesting, right? Because the idea there is that um, what this is the problem with Marxism. Because Marx uh, had a one of the problems with Marxism. Marx had a labor theory of value, so he thought that all value came from labor. Um, that like the value of the tree came from my the effort that I put into cutting it down, into carving it up, into turning it into a chair, right? So you buy the chair and what you're giving me money for is the all the labor that I put into that. And it's true that you are paying for the labor, but that's not all you're paying for, which is what their point with um, William Ophuls is pointing out here, is that the tree took 100 years to grow. Uh, the tree was preserving the soil, for example, stopping um, landslides because of the roots. Like, there's a whole bunch of other things that are being taking that you're not taking into account, and so the there's a what do you call it? Um, there's a market failure, and that market failure is that the the cost that you're paying for that tree is not reflective of its value because you're not able to recognize the value of the tree in some sense in and of itself. Right. There's the hidden value that that. That you just care about the the wood of you know the actual physical material, but not the intangible things that you don't realize. Yeah, which is yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so so here we go. Okay, a money economy takes the disconnection and therefore the failure one step further. The higher the level of economic development, the more money tends to become an abstraction rather than a counter for something concrete. Thus, the economy can boom as the ecology disintegrates. This is particularly true mm. if the society resorts to currency debasement or loose credit as a way of, to evade encroaching physical limits and foster an artificial prosperity. For then, the economy becomes completely unhinged from the concrete ecological reality, overshoot and collapse as the inevitable result. So hmm. also very interesting. So simultaneously you have the market failure that you're mispricing things, but then your money is becoming more abstract. So it's being snipped from its concrete. So it'd be like, we left the gold currency under Nixon or the, the gold standard, right? Because gold used to be used as um, a measure for the value of cash, in some sense, what you really had wasn't cash. You had gold. It was just the cash was a representative, so you didn't have to carry bricks of gold around. Right? <laughs> Not very transportable. <laughs> right. And now and gold is a really good measure of value because it's pure, right? So it doesn't – it's not it, – it's not mixed in with other stuff. So that allows for you to really – so it's just gold, right? You don't have to start like – picking apart its atoms to figure out how much of something you have. It's just gold, right? Um, but in addition, uh, it's rare. So that scarcity gives a certain amount of value, right? Yep. Um, but when we snapped that, when we cut that line down to reality, our money only has value because we say that it has value. Right. Because, because we all agree. The, you, the, the government says it has a certain 
a certain dollar value, and then it's also bought in by the world economy. Yeah. It is what also keeps it stable to some degree. Right. And now we can go even more abstract, but I think that this might be a very, it's a da- is a different thing. Like Bitcoin yes. is crazy abstract, right? Because it has no connect. It's just ones and zeros in some sense, but there's a sort of infinite scarcity thing that goes on with Bitcoin, um, which is the idea that gold, if a meteorite that was made out of gold landed on earth, then suddenly every currency that had been based on the gold standard would collapse right? <laughs> if there was enough gold, right? Or if we hit some vein of gold that was just like some huge mine and suddenly there's way more gold than we ever thought there was, now you're screwed. But what you can do with Bitcoin is basically have just set in hard limits and just be like, there will never be any more than this, period. Yeah. And it will never change. And there's no way to get around it, assuming that we don't create technologies that can break into the blockchain and all this, but um, it's actually been tested a lot. So it seems to be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the blockchain right. seems like a good idea. Whether or not the whole crypto thing is going to take over is up to much debate. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people are using it not as really currency yet. Cause I don't know. If, I think everyone's hesitant to, to do that. And there's other issues around it. Like you saying, the abstraction part is it's like, well, what happens if we shut off the servers that are storing those things, right? Um, then poof, it goes happens away. If you lose your password. You like the guys that have had like millions, 30 million, million <laughs> right? In Bitcoin, they just don't have their password anymore. And they're like, shit, can you imagine how unbelievably there, there are some. There were some stories of like guys who had bought like their first, like they had one Bitcoin stored on a wallet somewhere on like a computer they weren't using. And then all of a sudden it blew up and he, he was like, I can't get it on my account. And there, a lot of those things are locked by like time sensitive. Like if you get your password wrong X amount of times, then it deletes it. So you could literally throw away millions of dollars because you forgot your password. Kind oh of thing. God. Right. Exactly. And like, that's, but that's the thing is like, cut this is also tying back into decentralization thing is Bitcoin and crypto is a decentralization of economics where it doesn't require a federal bank or a go- global bank system to function. It's It's got the, the backing of the internet and the interconnection of people buying into the networks as represented by the coins themselves. Right. But when you have these things, there's no checks and balances so that when there is human error involved or scams, you're not protected. There's no one who's going to co- – there's no Bitcoin police that are going to be like, well, we're going to get your money back. No one's going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, so that's the risk you, you, you run when you hyper decentralize. Yeah, that's right. That's the, the running around. Everybody's on their own thing. That's the opposite of the, the wild west again. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course you can do the opposite. This is what scares me more than Bitcoin. Like I could imagine Bitcoin being useful in some ways and not useful in others, maybe as like a medium. Um, if for international travel or something like this. Um, but what freaks me out uh, is the, I think it's government centralized currency. Oh yeah. You mentioned this in, in uh, the EU, right? Is, is they were talking yeah, about this? They're talking about in the U S and I can't remember if it's actually called government. Let me, can I look this up? Um, that, that wasn't, who is that guy who was on Rogan? You talked about this. Uh, because he was talking about the radicals in, 
in Europe? Yeah, it was um, central bank digital currency. Here we go. Generally defined as a digital liability in the central bank that is widely available to general public. Okay, so I'm on the um, Federal Reserve website, Central Bank Digital Currency. Well, the Federal Reserve has made no decisions on whether to pursue or implement a Central Bank Digital Currency, or CBDC. We have been exploring the potential benefits and risks of CBDCs from a variety of angles, including through technological research and experimentation. Our key focus is on whether and how a CBDC could improve an already safe and efficient U.S. domestic payment system. Uh, defined as a digital liability of a central bank that is widely available to the general public. Okay, a lot of this is pretty boring. Just jargon? Make digital, let you make digital payments. It's Bitcoin, but backed by the Federal Reserve. Right. It's, it's, yeah. uh, isn't it like USD coin or something like that? There's like a US, it's like a US Bitcoin. Something like that. I forget so what it was. I know China had one too for a little while. The thing that freaks me out about that is that um, if you're state dissident, then you're fucked. Right. <laughs> you get you get into Orwellian territory rather quickly. They can just, they, you don't have, like if I have cash on me, they have to arrest me to take the cash, right? But mm -hmm. if my money is all... Um, all digital. It's all like Bitcoin, but they, the central government has control over this thing. They can just turn it off. Right. Like literally you could just turn it off. And so you get a journalist who writes something terrible about the current, <laughs> the current administration. And they say, this guy's been too loud too often and it's getting too much traction. Boop. It's like, Oh, I want to go buy milk and eggs. Sir, you're out of money. What, what do you mean you're out of money? <laughs> Yeah, and thank God the Department of Homeland Security's um, misinformation board, which was going was going to be an enforcement board, right, to, uh, to try to get yeah. misinformation, um, was disbanded. Uh, be which God, the woman that was the head of it was ridiculous, doing fucking <laughs> she was like singing show tunes on YouTube it was absurd. Um, but thank God, imagine that you have a, a central. A centralized currency, a digital currency that you can turn on, on or off, and you don't, and you have the ability now to screw with people that are messing with the government. Now you might say that there would be legal issues in place that they would need a justification, but if you have a misinformation panel that has reinforcement, this kind of thing, it's homeland security, whatever. Um, everybody is giving up misinformation. Everyone, unless you know what the objective truth is, which no one knows then the standard by which you would determine or or define misinformation uh, isn't there. So it's to, it becomes like subjective. What is and is not misinformation right. is subjective. Right? Because to make it just a little clearer, what is false is dependent on what is true. But if you don't know what's true, then anything you want can be false. And so the government now would have <laughs> the ability to make any statement you ever say misinformation and give them the justification ostensibly to turn off all of your income, not just your income, everything you own, all of the money you've saved, everything, just no access.
Right. Like it reminds me of like the people who are like maximalists with like the te- technophiles of like everything will be controlled by the blockchain. We don't want that. Like <laughs> because then you give people root access, quote unquote, to be able to turn off your life. <laughs> I don't want a mix, right? Like Like I would think so. I'm looking and I'm thinking of nature now. Like nature deals in abstractions. Um in us, right? Because the human brain has layers of increasingly abstract means of expression. So hand gestures, body language, this is all very concrete, but it's actually more abstract than just acting, right? So an animal, right. um, the we'd say the less sophisticated, not um, great apes, uh, animals don't do all of their action is a concrete, direct meaning, right? They bite something because they're trying to eat it, right? There's no biting something or like snarling their teeth in a way that's a symbol of expression to tell you the risk here. Right. Right. Like smiling, like smiling for a human could be misconstrued by a simpler animal as like showing your teeth and you're angry. Well, we'll, we're weird because so okay. So here's one touch. So a, a lizard, just acts, right? That's right. all that it does. Everything that it does, there is no break between the action and the meaning of the action. Okay. But wolves, when they have a dominance dispute, um, the losing wolf will lay down and show his neck. And then the dominant wolf will bite his neck, but not actually bite it, just mm-hmm. to say, I win, right? And I yeah. could cut your throat out, but I'm not going to do it. Right. So I'll get back in line. It's a, and- it's a tap out. <laughs> It's a tap out. That's exactly what it is. It's a tap out. But notice that that action, though concrete in that it's action, is more abstract because it doesn't go. It's a ritual. The wolf doesn't yeah. go through with the actual thing. And so hand gestures are our implicit version of this. Okay. So human beings still do this kind of gesture. And uh, David McNeil is a psychologist who looked at hand gestures and he found that like they anticipate your phrases in meaning and in time. So the gesture itself has a meaning to it and it happens right oh, before weird. the word come out because the meaning that you're trying to express bubbles up and comes out as words. It moves up the layers of abstraction in your brain until it pops out as the most abstract language symbols, right? Phonetic sound symbols. And then we can make it even more abstract by creating an alphabet. So you right. don't even have to hear it anymore, right? But these words are still connected to an action, but only at a great distance because the point of the abstracting is so that you can do something without having to do it. <laughs> it's to run a simulation, right? And you can, your dreams are running simulations. They're another layer on top of a layer. Peterson has it set up in Maps of Meaning where it's procedural, so action, episodic, so narrative, thinking through the episodes in your brain. And then semantics, a language, right? And they, they're stacked and there's, it can be broken down further, but that's the idea. So nature has these abstractions, right? There, and there's a function to them. So it's not that abstraction is necessarily bad, but if, if you're all talk and no action, that's a problem because your abstraction has been snipped from its underlying, like the concrete. Boring. Right. Yeah. And so. What you might want is 
if the biological model can be used to talk about the economy, what you might want is to have Bitcoin and a concrete, you would probably want Bitcoin cash and the gold standard. So you have a chain of abstraction, but they never lose their connection. Right. right. They stay. Well, you, you also want to have just like it's, it's be another word for resilience in the system, right? Cause if one or more fail, you want to be able to have a backup that you can just plug into the system. Be like, don't worry, guys. It's going to suck, but we've got a, a backup in place. Right. And, and at it's the version of decentralization again, because you don't, because you're not over reliant on one thing. You don't have all your chips on black, right? Like you don't ever want to do that, especially in a civilization scale. Yeah. That's, and what's really, okay. So this is really cool too. So it, it prevents to some degree the total collapse of your economy in the same way that um, the overloading of your, your system, the human system, um, results in the shutting down of front to back, right? And low, right? So yeah, the high level abstract stuff, because it's expensive and it's predicated on everything beneath it, um, it's also fragile in particular and very narrow. Um, so if you start to overload the system, so a lot of energy is being used, and then that energy that energy then stops being available to the higher order systems, those start to shut down so that you can use the cheaper, so to speak, systems beneath it while still surviving, right? So it sacrifices the leaves on the tree to preserve the trunk. Okay. Makes it's sense. It's the same principle. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> what happens is you can have, this is what ecstasy is, not the drug, but though maybe the drug too. Um, <laughs> but the experience of like religious ecstasy or sexual ecstasy is a bottom up surge of um, sensory information. That's so much, so much sensory information that it overpowers the explicit systems and you over, you lose yourself mm. because the you that you identify is, as is a higher order structure resting on top of the rest of the brain. And if you get enough energy being used, enough information that needs to be processed, you can overload that system and lose yourself in the moment. And so you can do the same thing with the economy again. Uh oh, something really drastic has changed. Bang. Okay. It's really expensive to maintain Bitcoin, but if we, sh if we transfer that Bitcoin down to cash, then we can turn all of that off, preserve all the, uh, you redirect that energy to preserving the system and keeping it surviving until we can later fix the problem and turn it all back on. Right. Fail safe mechanisms. Right. I mean, we're definitely not fucking set up to do this. No, not at all. <laughs> that's the idea. That's what yeah. it looks like you have to do me. I mean, that's what you'd want to do if you were just building anything. Like, you want redundancy in everything. And, like, like we, you have this happen all the time in jobs or in different places where you have one person who's the single point of failure. And then whenever something bad happens, like, well, what happened? It's like, well... Bob was drunk at, you know, he had a rough day and wasn't uh, doing his A game. And all of a sudden you find out, oh, be because that person was around or not able to, you know, perform correctly. I, I mean, even Chernobyl failed like this, where you had a manager who sucked. 
And then, <laughs> and then they had an old system on top of that that failed, and they had multiple failures across the board that they weren't corrected for. Yep. And then it goes boom. And then that shoots nope. the entire nuclear industry in, in the foot because people have bad ideas around <laughs> nuclear catastrophe because they have one poster child to hang up and say, well, that's why we don't do that when it's wrong because it's perception over reality. Hmm. Okay. Last Back paragraph. It all seems so obvious once we step back and focus on the relation between the edifice of civilization and its ecological foundation. Of course, resources are limited. Of course, you cannot violate limits with impunity. Of course, we cannot indefinitely consume natural capital. Yet, history is littered with the corpses of civilizations that lived beyond their ecological means and paid the price. Why is this so? The answer is complex, and we shall deal with the psychological and sociological aspects later. But one major reason is that the human mind tends to overlook the consequences of continuous growth. Let us therefore explore the second biophysical limit confronting civilization, the exponential function. Then it goes in the second chapter. So there we go. We finished a chapter. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> If I mean, this is hell's, <laughs> you should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the exponential function is just an interesting thing because it reminds me of the pandemic because everyone was panicking about that. Um, and the rate of, what was it? The R naught value was what was thrown around a ton. <laughs> Which is just for listeners explain the exponential function. Yeah. So the exponential function is basically if you have. A mathematical number, we'll just use X, and the exponent is the little little number up in the top right corner in the number. Um, and it just basically, once it gets going, it looks like a J-curve, where it just goes forever up to infinity. Um, so if I'm looking at a graph, then from left to right, there's a sharp J increase yeah. on that graph. And it just goes off to infinity at a, at a ever-increasing rate, so 2, 4, 6... Uh, 1632, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we'll have a link to into the show notes when this podcast goes live on the other platforms. So you'll find it on the website. Right. And but, that's yeah. something like the Pareto distribution or um, Matthew's principle or um, the idea that as you continue to grow, it becomes easier to grow. And then you keep growing until you've, like he notices in this book, reach your ecological limits in the case of a civilization and kaboom. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about this a lot, right? Like for some reason, ever since we were, we were little, there's been this like thought that the economy can just grow forever and every business can just, you know, get 2% year over year revenue and all these things, right. Without realizing that we're on a ball of rock and, you know, and with finite, all you know whatever it is right and so you you end up having this like it just feels so disconnected to reality right like i i just don't understand how people can just think that it's not going to there can't be a finite limit like not everything can scale indefinitely yeah 
And that's, that's a weird, that's like the, the, these businesses that think that you need to be built on infinite growth. This is, um, Eric Weinstein has talked about this. Um, he, what did he, ego, uh, exponential growth, something. Oh, let me look this up. Embedded growth obligations. Okay. So Mm -hmm. there's structures in the institutions that are predicated on the idea of growth is something like the idea. Um, So egos are structures built into institutions in times of growth that assume growth will continue. And the institution must therefore grow to meet its egos or its leaders must lie about the presence of growth. So that's exactly what we're talking about. The compromising of incentives causes institutions to tend towards exploitative or sociopathic behaviors as their leaders face selective pressures to maintain the status quo. Right. Uh, Eric first publicly introduced the idea in his first appearance on the Rubin Report on January 6th, 2017. Okay, this is according to uh, The Portal, which was his podcast wiki. Wow. Okay. Cool. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just... There seems to be some sense of like divorcing from reality. And and I don't know why this phrase keeps, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately, but it's called, uh, it's kind of a buzzword term, but called motivated reasoning. And we all have motivated reasoning for whatever reason. But basically what that means is your behaviors are driven or your, your behaviors and your beliefs are driven by what you believe. And a lot of times we end up believing things because we're motivated to believe those things by either our own choices or by choices of what others are asking of us. So either spouses, bosses, um, et cetera, you know, friends, family, or otherwise. And you see a lot of this kind of, in another word for this would be rationalization, where you rationalize away these things, even though you know they cannot be sustainable, you just lie to yourself and say, well, I do this for X, Y, or Z reason, with, and you don't tether it to a reality. And then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff like a dodo and you're like, well, why did I land up here? <laughs> did I go so long? Why? <laughs> exactly. You divorced yourself from reality. That's what happened. <laughs> and part of it is like, it's so funny to me because it, the lie really is the a big problem, if not the problem in some sense. But it, the lie is more complicated because it's just, it's more like just any falsity. You're like you don't even have to be lying in so far as you know, like in, in which is to say actively deceiving, consciously deceiving. Yeah. Um, or, or, or remaining consciously ignorant. You don't want to know the answer to the question. <laughs> right. So you just don't ask, ask it. In the Marine Corps, you right. say, um, don't ask questions you don't want the answer to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that, so, those, that's a common one. Yeah. So it's like, or you could do that. So that's willful blindness. Willful, willful, willful blindness. blindness. Yeah. Um, so you have that, but all of it boils down to a certain kind of, it's a deviation from the nature of reality. So th- what that suggests is that if what collapses civilizations is that deviation from reality, and we have a bunch of reasons why not to deviate or why to deviate from reality, to lie to ourselves, be willfully or whatever, um, and human beings do this, and that that will, that is actually the thing that slowly and over time as it compounds results in the collapse of the civilization then the way to per- ultimately prevent the collapse of any civilization is 
something it's it's enlightenment for everyone in the civilization which is to say that insofar as it's possible to be to remove any deceits to see the world as it is to experience things without self this illusion then you can act in the world in a way it would allow for a civilization to be maintained indefinitely. Yeah. So that's the, so there we go. Unzel, if we want our civilization to last indefinitely, we all just have to have enlightened. <laughs> oh, let's just go on stellar retreats for, for years on end. It will solve all the world's problems. I'm in. <laughs> Oh, oh God! What are you doing? What's the camera? It's been like randomly zooming in and out. I don't know what the it just died on me. (laughs) It's still on. It's It's got a little gimbal on it. Hold on, let me restart it. It just gave up. I'm over here, buddy. Hacked by the government. They got us. It just died. Very interested in what your phone is doing on your lap. I turned my head down. I was tracking my face, and then it, it's like, where does his face oh, go? It tracks your face. That's funny. That's yeah. Funny. Normally, it's uh, it it's fine, but I don't know what happened. Well, hello, viewers. I hope you're all doing well. This is feeding curiosity after dark. Um, I'm now going to start reading 50 shades of gray. I hope you guys are ready. Um, I'm going to get some red lighting going and really set the mood. I've got a candle on back there. I don't know if you could see it. Hold on right there. Perfect. Settle in everybody get a blanket. (laughs) I actually have a story about that. About 50 shades of gray. I'll keep you entertained. When I was deployed in the Marine Corps years and years ago, uh, I was doing security. Okay. So we would sit around in a box, not do much, not very big, maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. And uh, some of these boxes uh, had books there. And so one of these had 50 shades of gray. So I actually read 50 shades of gray, but I didn't read it just like cover to cover, we'd get so bored at the 12 hour out of 16 hours on this post that we would, one guy would read it like, like, like a storybook. So you'd have like five guys sitting like cross-legged and one dude reading 50 shades of gray to them. It was hilarious. Let's see. Well, we've lost Wenzel. That's about it for the conversation as far as I can tell. Um, 
maybe we'll keep talking more when he gets back. But do you want to say I think this went pretty well? I hope that some people um, – I hope that whoever watched or will watch this in the future got something out of it. I'm sure this will be turned into a podcast um, in addition to having been a live stream. Uh, yeah. Again, the book is Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail. Highly recommend it. Uh, All right. Thanks for coming.